Good morning, real life. How's it going? Glad you guys are here. I brought my posse with me. Uh, <laughs> it's my herd. All right, so uh, you guys know that a few weeks ago, um, we brought up Russ and John Squared um, for you guys to um, look at as elder candidates. And I said, hey, if you got any concern, you can fill out a card, turn it in to me. I got three cards, one for each of them. They were all affirming who these guys were as people. So that's good news. The vetting process works. Um, that's good. Now, on my right, I have Tom Mays, Roger Miller, and Scott Berry, who are also, they have been elders and have been serving for about the last seven years as elders. Also, one of our elders is Steve Mayers, not with us today, but um, that's something that is uh, it's been a big deal. These guys have put in a lot of time for the church, and it's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, stuff that you guys don't see, the, the prayer, the wrestling, the keeping me in, a, in going in the same general direction, um, which is proving that proves to be a difficult task sometimes because I got lots of good ideas. Um, they just don't always get finished before I come to the next idea. So uh, these guys are really good. It's like no follow-through. Um, finishing an idea would be good. So they're... <laughs> Squirrel! Um, so these guys are great. These guys are great. I wanted to read a passage of scripture for you. This is out of Titus, and Titus uh, is one of Paul's guys. And um, this is something that is, uh, to me, it's kind of important. It kind of connects to what we're doing here. It's, and this is what it says. This is Paul talking to Titus. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So how did, he, how did he finish what was left undone? He appointed elders. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker. <clears throat> Not a, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So this is what we ask our elders to do and to be. This is their, their calling. And these guys have accepted that challenge. Willingly would be a, too strong of a word, I think, um, with fear and trepidation, they have accepted it as they should. This is a major um, position in our church of influence and responsibility. And so these guys have been praying that through. They've been in this training. And our elders today have uh, come to kind of take the role of Titus here a little bit, put hands on them and set them aside as elders. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather around these guys. And we're going to put hands on them. So now what you can do is you can do a little long-range hand putty on just pick one. I don't want to get all technical on you. Uh, hand putty on. Um, pick one. Put your hand on them from there. You can actually stick your arm out. You can do this. Well, as long as you feel comfortable. As long as you feel comfortable. Like, don't freak out or anything. But it's not weird. But we want to pray for these guys uh, for the new role that they're about ready to embark on. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we uh, want to commit John and John and Russ to you. Lord, we know that their heart is to serve you. And... Um, their desire is to see your kingdom uh, become everything that you've intended for it to be on the Palouse and beyond. 
So we pray for wisdom. Lord, your, your word says that when we ask for that, you give it generously. And so we ask for wisdom, for protection for their families um, as they engage the new level of sacred responsibility in stewarding this church. Uh, Lord, thank you for the privilege of watching these guys wrestle through this, not just as a, as a position to grapple and grasp for influence, but as a responsibility to honor you with everything they do and say. Pray you protect their wives, protect their kids, protect their marriages. Uh, Lord, most of all, be glorified in everything that we do and say in this church and in this eldership. Lord, we love you and we trust you, so we're going to follow you wherever you go. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so that's those guys. And we are, that's good. Okay, stop. We got a long way to go before the sun sets. Uh, I want to welcome in Pullman this morning. Give a shout out to our Pullman peeps. Glad they're joining us this morning. We are excited about this sermon and uh, just, I mean, this is a huge story, huge chunk of scripture, and we're just going to touch the cross, we're just going to touch the surface of it. And so what I want to do is, I want to invite you to make sure that you're reading through the reading plan that's on our website, it's sent out on Twitter, read through that reading plan, come to church on Sunday having read the passage that we're going to preach about, because it'll mean more to you. And we're not going to read all the section of it, because we don't have time to do that. So make sure that you come reading it, so that as we talk about the chunks, it makes more sense. Okay? Uh, so I want to make sure you do that. Now, we are talking about chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and the first half of chapter 9. Chapter 5 is a genealogy. Okay, chapter 6, we begin a new story. And um, any serious critic of the Bible, any serious scholar of the Bible is going to understand that the Noah account of Noah and the flood strikes very similar to a Mesopotamian creation story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. How many of you have heard this? You good, and how many of you are like, I didn't really know what to say about that. The, the Epic of Gilgamesh predates the writing of Noah and the Flood by a long way. And so what it seems is, well, they're, they're just making this stuff up. They're just pulling out of other cultures. One of the things that I believe is happening in the Bible, and if you were go back to the first week when Marty talked about uh, genre, genre matters, the genre, the kind of literature that we're reading matters. Is this historical narrative or is it poetry or is it high, you know, what, what is it, apocalyptic? It's all genre matters. What's going on here is uh, this is not historical narrative. Now, that being said, that does not say that this didn't actually happen. In fact, I would suggest that the fact that two cultures are writing the same story may just, in fact, give the story veracity. Does that make sense? It may just say that, yeah, I mean, every culture in the world has a flood account. But what I find interesting is the, Moses, as he's writing Genesis at the base of Mount Sinai, is writing down all these stories that are consistent with the cultures of other parts of the world and their creation stories. But what he's doing is he's repainting these stories with a different kind of God. And that's the revolutionary piece about this. 
This is not a God who takes. This is a God who provides. This is a God who's given you everything that you need to succeed. This is a God who does everything, goes before you, makes it possible. Like this, this is a God who's for you, not against you. He's peaceable and loving, not angry. This is revolutionary. Things that we take for granted, this is a radical new concept on who God is. And I feel like at one level, that is also true with this story. We're not talking about the historicity of it. Did it happen? Did it not happen? There is fascinating research on the flood and where the ark is and in the mountains of Iraq or Turkey, somewhere, somewhere over there. Like you read, you can read about that. Um, my goal is not so much to try to prove Noah and the flood accurate. My goal is to give back to what I would call authorial intent. What did the author mean when he wrote it? That's what I'm interested in. What kind of conversation is he inviting us into? Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's no question about the parallels between this and Noah and the flood. So I want to talk about it just for a brief minute, okay? What's happening in uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is a king, and the part that is consistent with Noah really isn't about Gilgamesh. It's about somebody else that we'll get to in a second. But Gilgamesh is a king. He is two-thirds God and one-third man. Now, I don't know why it breaks down that way, but that's, this, that's how the story goes. Two-thirds God, one-third man. Now, uh, Gilgamesh has a friend that is kind of odd and weird, and, and there's this funny stuff about how his friend even was made and... They, but they get along great, and then his friend dies. And so Gilgamesh becomes obsessed with immortality. Well, there's this character in the Epic of Gilgamesh called Utnapishtim. Uh, I've been practicing this all week. Utnapishtim. And um, a name that I would give for those of you who are with child. Submit that to the list of considerations. Utnapish team. No one else would have that name. They would always know who you were talking to. But their, but their second name would have to be something really simple. Like Utnapish team, Joe. It would have to be that way. All right. Utnapish team is the Noah character. And uh, so Gilgamesh... Has, goes in search of this Udnapish team because he has found the key to immortality. He's been given immortality. He survived a global flood. So I want to read about this. It says, Udnapish team's name means he who saw life, though he who saw death would be just as appropriate since he witnessed the destruction of the entire world. The former king and priest of Shurapak, Udnapish team was the fortunate recipient of the god Ea's favor. His disdain for Gilgamesh's desperate quest for eternal life might seem ungenerous since he himself is immortal, but Udnapish team must carry a heavy load of survivor's guilt. He doesn't know why, of all the people in the world, Ea chose him to live, but he does know that he tricked hundreds of his doomed neighbors into laboring day and night and to build the boat that would carry him and his family to safety while he abandoned their fate. So Unapish team tricked all of his friends to help him build a boat that was going to save him and kill everybody else. Nice guy. The kind you would want for a friend. 
What Napa's team gained by his trickery was a great boon for humankind, however. He received a promise from the gods that henceforth only individuals would be subject to death and that humankind as a whole would endure. When Utnapishtim tested Gilgamesh by asking him to stay awake for a week, he knew that he would fail. Just as he knew that Gilgamesh wouldn't profit from the magical plant that had the power, that had the power to make him young again. Gilgamesh is one-third man, which is enough to seal his fate. All men are mortal, and all mortals die. Yet since Utnapishtim sees life, he knows that life extends beyond the individual, that families, cities, and cultures endure. This is something that we need to land on, that the, the conversation ultimately comes to Gilgamesh's pursuit for immortality is realized not in his being able to live forever, but in the legacy that he leaves for people around him, family, friends, cities. You get the point? Now, as we approach two cultural stories of very similar origins, what we want to do is compare what's there that's the same, and number two, what's different because the author's trying to make a distinction. And so we can wrestle with that. Now, all kinds of conversations about this, and again, I am not I am not trying to prove or disprove whether or not knowing the flood actually happened. That's another conversation. What I'm trying to do is to see, are there some lessons that we can learn beyond just the historical facts that might help us to be able to understand what God's up to in the world? Are you with me? Yes. Now, Noah is called a righteous man. And the question that I wrestle with is, what makes Noah righteous? Now, his name means he rests. Noah means he rests. Now, why does that make him righteous? Well, if you think about it, go all the way back to Genesis 1. How do we celebrate God creating the world? By rest. This is the guts of Sabbath. And for a group of people who have been slaves for 480 years, coming out of Egypt and down to Mount Sinai, their whole world has been wrapped around this idea of you're only valuable because you produce. And God says, no, you're valuable because I made you. Again, revolutionary concept. So why don't you relax? Chill out, take a day off, and rest in the grace of a God who does the work for you. Yes. Noah is willing to take God at his word. And so he rests. While the rest of the world is clamoring, working, producing, not resting, not properly managing creation, not doing what it's supposed to be doing, Noah rests. And God looks at him and says, you, you're righteous. Now I want to read some passages about Noah and what makes him righteous. First of all, I'm going to start in Genesis 6. These are the generations of Noah Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. I would love for that to be said of me. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the introduction to Noah. His reputation is as a man who is righteous. 
Let's look at this again, verse 22, chapter six. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Let's look at chapter seven, and look at this again. Chapter seven, verse one. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. What makes him righteous? Look at verse five. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So what makes Noah righteous? He does what the Lord commands him to do. Make sense? He is righteous because he's willing to do what God asks him to do. Now there's an interesting twist in the story. The rabbis call Noah the man with the fur coat. And here's what they mean by that. When it's cold outside, you have a choice. You can put a coat on and warm yourself, or you can build a fire and warm everyone around you. Noah never, ever pleads for anyone. What makes Abraham a man that God would use? What do we see in him that we love so much? He's a guy that will ask God to spare an entire city for 10 righteous people, and he begs for them. But God, if you just had just a few righteous, would you save the city? Because that's Abraham's heart. He's a guy that will put himself out to serve other people. That's the kind of guy that God uses. Where does Noah plead for anybody? He never tells a single soul why he's building a boat. 120 years, he builds this boat and never tells a single soul what he's doing. He never pleads for the salvation or safety of anyone. He's righteous. He's righteous. He follows the rules. Have you ever hung out with a rule follower that doesn't really care about you? They're a real joy. <laughs> Righteous in his generation, and I would love for that to be said of me, I would, but there's this interesting twist in the plot that I think reveals something really important. Genesis chapter seven. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Jesus, Jesus took the bread. What are you talking about? That's not the end of this passage. There we go. And we're back. This one's going online. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> That's, never mind. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Who was left? Only Noah and only those who were with him. Like, I wonder... What would have happened, and I don't know the answer to this, but what would have happened 
if Noah had pleaded for the people around him. Moses pleaded for his people and God spared them. Abraham pleaded for people and God spared them. This is a pattern of the kind of people that God wants to use. And yet, Noah doesn't. Now, Noah's righteous. He's righteous. But he doesn't plead for the people around him. Maybe he misses it a little bit. Now, God fulfills his promise. He does. Maybe not quite the way that Noah would have wanted him to do it. I think they were cooped up in the boat a little bit longer than they would have preferred. But it takes a while for an entire earth full of water to recede. Right? Let's look at this, Genesis chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. So they get off the ark, finally. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's promise is I'm never going to destroy the earth with water again. As long as the earth remains, there's going to be heat and cold. I think for most of us in this area, we're like, and so we're ready for the heat part. Like, done with the cold. I don't know about you guys, but done, done with the cold. Look at this in Genesis chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. So God made a covenant with like elephants and giraffes and stuff too. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God puts his rainbow in the sky. Now we look at that and go, okay, now wait a minute. Science has proven that when it rains and the sun is shining, the sun goes through the raindrops and it refracts the light and it splits it apart and the rainbow isn't a God thing, it's a science thing and you can have a double rainbow all the way. (laughs) Right. But read the story. Before this, It had never rained. So would they have ever seen it? Who cares if it was a science thing or if it was a God thing? They'd never experienced rain before, so it's the first time he saw it. (laughs) Next argument, let's go. All right. Now, God seals his deal with Noah and his sons. And one of the things that I wrestle with in this story is how did Noah do at transferring his legacy, his righteousness? How did he do? 
I put the back half of chapter 9 in your notes. We're not going to read it. And the reason we're not going to read it is because it's part of next week's sermon. And I don't want to step on anybody's toes next week. But what I would invite you to consider is this possibility that what's happening with, with Noah is a lot bigger than what we're giving him credit for. My concern is that as he, in his righteousness, does everything that the Lord commands, he's completely missing the point that his eternal legacy is rooted in who he's invested in. Be righteous in your generation, but will your grandchildren count you as righteous? Do you see what I'm saying? As a pastor, this matters to me, and I would hope that for most of us who are trying to be spiritual leaders in our home to whatever level, like this matters, because I love you guys. I do. I love being a part of this church. I love watching God work in you, but if it meant that it cost me my kids, I'd walk away from it in a second, because I love them more. And by the way, you should want a pastor that's willing to say that. <laughs> I, one of the lessons that troubles me, and I see this again and again and again in ministry, where people are working so hard to be right that they miss the opportunity to transfer their faith to people around them. Like, what, what will people say when they come to your funeral? And don't be like, well, that's morbid. I'll tell you what they'll say when they come to my funeral. Uh, phew. <laughs> we survived it. We were worried about whether or not we were going to make it. What will people say when they come to your funeral? What are the stories that they will tell? Will they say that? was a person who lived out what they said? Or will they say, that was a person who showed me the face of God? That was a person who helped me experience who Jesus really is. What will they say about you? Because what we see immediately, even in Noah's life, is that just within his children, things become a train wreck and there's curses and there's problems immediately. Somehow, being righteous in his generation didn't transfer to righteousness in the generations after. And I see this happen a lot. And I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody, but how many times have you heard stories of spiritual leaders on a large scale, even on a global scale, whose children hate the Lord? Because they were righteous but they didn't understand that immortality is not rooted in living forever. It's rooted in the legacy that we leave. What's the legacy that you're leaving? It's a potent question. It's a potent question. I had a funny conversation with my, my oldest son the other day. He was asking me about he was trying to make a decision and he didn't know exactly what he was going to do or how to do it. And he's like, dad, what, what's your advice? Which is, he's 18. That's pretty rare. So I was like, okay, this like whatever comes out of my text next really matters because we, we were texting. 
We seem to communicate better that way. <laughs> that and the fact that I was in Turkey, whatever. And I was like, well, you could do whatever you want. Either, because it wasn't about good and bad, it was about good and best. And those are a lot harder decisions to make, right? And I said, you can do whatever you want. He goes, yeah, but dad, what do you think? I mean, tell me what you think. And I was like, okay. I said, well, life principles, we want to value these things in this order. Therefore, that would tend to make me lean towards this kind of decision. And he goes, that's the kind of advice I was looking for. That's what he said. He goes, thanks, man. You saved my life. <laughs> Probably didn't save his life, but uh, my son said, thanks, man. Whatever. Um, <laughs> like I, I was like, good, good dad moment. Problem is, it was kind of a bad dad moment. So Because I got to, like, he's 18, and I'm like, okay, so how, how did I miss having life principle conversation with him. You know what I mean? So on one hand, praise the Lord that I got the opportunity to have it, but then I was like, oh, no. I still have some work to do. Like, I thought I was done with him. He's 18. <laughs> one less bill to answer. You know, like, I wish that was true. But I, you know, I, I wrestle with that. Like, what is the legacy? And, I, and this is really powerful right now. I don't know if it's like the stage that my kids are at or just the reality of how old I am or whatever the stage of life I'm in. But this, this issue of what is the legacy that we're leaving behind? What is it that we're investing in other people? What will they remember about our faith? Will they call us people who keep the rules? Or will they call us people who invited us to a better version of Jesus living in us. I don't know, but I think the second one's better. Like, I want to be a person who's counted righteous, no question, but more valuable than that. I want to be a person that leaves a legacy of inspiring other people to walk closer to Jesus. That matters. So we're going to move towards the Lord's table. And, and so for those of you that are passing that out, I want you to go ahead and go back there and grab that. If you're new with us, we have an open table. And what that means is anybody that's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end. And then we'll take it all together. I'm going to get mine back here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Sorry, I forgot to bring mine out. I am still in another time zone. While they're passing that out, uh, I want to work through some implications. Implication number one, God keeps his promises. The timing of the fulfillment, however, is his to decide. I don't think that if I was Noah, I would have said, okay, God, and so for 120 years, you can take your time. And like, how many times in your life have you felt like God gave you a promise and it's taken him 120 years to fulfill it? Would you still be righteous at the end if it took 120 years for you to get there? Implication number two, people are watching us. Would they ask you why you live the way you do? 
Would your life be peculiar enough to get them to ask questions about why you choose to make decisions the way you do? It's always amazing to me how much I observe uh, people are watching when we don't know that they're watching. And just when I feel like, you know, I kind of have an awareness of where people are at and all that in my life, I know when someone's looking at me or not, and somebody will walk up and tell me, like the other day I saw you walking down the street and you were walking intensely, you looked angry. So you, something's wrong with you, you probably don't love Jesus anymore. <laughs> didn't realize I was walking in an unspiritual way. <laughs> Sorry. But when we freak out at the restaurant or the, because they got our order wrong, right? First world problems. Be thankful for food, you know. I think that the, the waiter or waitress is more valuable than the food, how do we talk to them? When we freak out at the grocery store clerk, I said paper, not plastic. And our head spins around. Like people are watching. They notice that. They notice that stuff. Even when we feel like they're not watching. And, and I've even heard this. I went to the restaurant one time with pastors. Not in our church, but pastors. And the, the service, the waiter was less than stellar. Now, I don't care because I got my food and my food was, <laughs> was good. The guy that was paying the bill, he's like, I'm not tipping him. What? He said, I'm not tipping him. Why? Well, because he needs to learn that good service is important. No. He needs to learn that Jesus loves him. And we prayed before our meal. That's what I told him. We prayed before our meal. You'll tip him or I will. Because the last thing I want to do is have, listen, if you, it's awesome. If you pray before your meal at a restaurant, that's awesome. But you better tip. <laughs> tip 20, 30%. Seriously, like don't, because you know what waiters and waitresses will tell you is the worst time, the worst time to be a waiter or waitress is at Sunday afternoon when all the church people go out to eat. They'll tell you that over and over again because we are stingy people. People are watching us, but they ask you why you live the way you do. Next implication, we must live righteous, but we must also invite others into honoring God with our actions. Our legacy is in future generations, not in right decisions. That's important for us to recognize. Last implication, the next time we see a rainbow, maybe we should ask, how am I doing at building a fire? Or am I just wearing a coat? How am I doing it inviting other people to understand who Jesus really is. What I love about taking communion every week is it's this reminder to us of how we can invite people into that kind of lifestyle well. It reminds us that we're laying our life down 
not pushing our own rights and our own agendas. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. So let's remember Jesus this morning. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we just want to say thank you for your grace. Thank you for the promise that the rainbow represents to us. Lord, help us to constantly be reminded that our invitation is to build a fire for everyone to be warm, that the, the way that we leave our legacy matters. Help us to be mindful of how we invest in the people around us. Always be being cognizant of who you are and how that affects our conversations. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.